I can't on Sunday morning uh, really address everything, um, but if there are things that you have encountered in dealing with some of these topics uh, with others or that you have struggled with yourself, I want to take a little opportunity each Sunday night to really deal with that. It'll be more necessary later on when we get into some of the aspects of false teaching and things like that in the book of Jude, uh, but I don't want to um, avoid it at this early stage either because the doctrines are very important and that we establish them very well and uh, cover our bases. In other words, I don't want you to walk away scratching your heads thinking, well, maybe that's true or maybe these other people are true. Uh, we want to really uh, fully investigate them and I do not want to give an unbalanced presentation out of God's Word. I strive to uh, cover all of them and I've tried to do that with both the uh, description of the called and the sanctified. We're going to do the same thing. If you feel a little out of balance this morning, like maybe you're not sure you're saved, that's okay. Um, we're going to balance it off uh, in the next couple of weeks when we get to the idea of the preservation of the saints. Uh, that is the next word in Jude 1. And so we have dealt with the called and now the sanctified. And we have addressed and uh, really um, very directly, which is very different, directly um, pointed out the error of a Calvinistic model of these words. That they have abused the scriptures, that they have misused them, and have ignored the plainest understanding of very powerful scriptures. Um, that all of us know from a childhood uh, that God so loved the world and he gave his son to die for them, uh, that whoever believes should not perish and have everlasting life. And so we are pretty familiar with those, and yet we let this cloud of error come in with very rational, uh, systematic doctrine, but it is not biblical and uh, there are some balance points here, and rather than saying that these are opposites, I think one of the things I had with uh, um, James Oskofsky was he keeps saying, well, they, are, what was the word he kept using? Um, oh, I can't think of it now. It just slipped my mind. Two things that are true, but, um, huh? Paradoxes. Yeah, he loved to say they were paradoxes. Well, I don't believe they're paradoxes. I don't believe there are any paradoxes in God. Um, God is holy. There is balance. And what we call paradoxes are most often because we are taking a singular perspective at a relational uh, truth. And so there is no paradox between Romans saying that uh, by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so you mentioned boast. I'm sorry, that's Ephesians. Um, but Paul's speaking that. And James saying that you can't be saved without works. Um, there's no paradox there, but rather it is a matter of perspective. And so I don't agree that there are paradoxes. And uh, I don't believe the three-in-one is a paradox. It is a relational uh, issue, and it is divine. Uh, the incarnation is not a paradox, that he can be the God-man. Uh, this is not two things that can't... Uh, agree with each other. This is uh, t 
To say it's a paradox is to deny a facet of God that we've studied in the past, which is this humility. And so generally when we say, well, we can't grasp it, well, we can't grasp it, but God has described it and explained it to us. And while we can't do it, we can certainly investigate it and discover that there is something going on here within God that enables and, uh, in fact, moves him to do these things. And so it is not a paradox that God says, I call you, and then to expect an answer, and for him to get all the glory for that and the answer. Uh, He gets the glory. It's a gift, and you have to receive it. It is not a paradox that he says, I'm going to sanctify you, and you have to sanctify yourself. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. Again, in relationships with people, um, it is never one-sided, is it? Have you ever been in a relationship that's one-sided? What do you call that? A one-sided relationship. Slavery? Slavery? <laughs> Depends upon the context, but, you know, you walk away. You go, well, I'm not in a relationship. They're, they're, they talk to me. I never talk to them. Um, relationship is bilateral. It requires the very word means that you are going to interact with one another. And that's what I've been trying to pull out and understanding that in the working and plan of God, he does not function unilaterally. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which we're going to try to do a little bit later on. It goes all the way back to creation of man and how he created man and what he gave man when he gave him his image, that we are image uh, that. Adam was an image bearer of God, and then Jesus Christ becomes the second image bearer of God, um, that we do not have anyone between Adam and Eve. Um, Eve was the image of God as well, uh, because there was no sin, but from Adam on, everyone's in the image of their father, and so Christ becomes the other one that is begotten in the image of God, him alone. And so part of that image that was granted to man uh, enables us that God will not unilaterally work and cause these things in us. He will initiate them, he will invite, he will do all these things, but he, but he is relational. Um, he will not enforce it in that manner that he just overrides your will, your personality, your intellect, your, your image. He, he just will not do it um, because of the sanctity of that facet of his creation of you. So um, we're trying to create a a balanced position, but I understand that there are, I don't address everything in a 45, 50 minute sermon on Sunday morning. So I want to give opportunity for you to really investigate. So I really want to know, do you have any other concerns, questions, uh, things you'd like further explained out of really the last three Sunday messages? I know that takes you back. Because last week we had our business meeting, week before that, Chris Hindle was here. So it's really the last three messages that takes you all the way back into the term, the called, as well as the sanctified. Uh, any questions or things, if you don't have something, I'm going to jump into the one pass I didn't get to this morning. Yes? Okay.
You're taking the analogy probably a little farther than it needs to be taken. If you really want to go that way, I would consider the Holy Spirit, it says he's the guarantee. And uh, if you want to take the analogy of the engagement, what does a man give a woman to guarantee the engagement? A ring. And so this is a possession of yours. I'm going to put it on your finger by which you know that I have set you aside to be my bride. And if you want to use that analogy, you can do that. I didn't really want to stretch it that far this morning to talk about the Holy Spirit as the promise. That's the promise. Uh, and whether it be a promise ring or whatever, it is the promise, but it's also a guarantee. And so we have that possession of ours that, um, that initiates and his presence and his activity in our life really demonstrates the intimacy that we will fully engage in with Christ that day. And so it is his promise, if you will, to us. <clears throat> in, in, well... In Muslim, in Muslim era, in the Middle East Muslim culture, that's true, but not necessarily in all, and not going back historically. Um, I don't know if that has always been the case. That's more of a Muslim influence on the Middle East culture today. Um, but going back, I don't think you'll see that evidenced in the Old Testament. I don't see you'll see that found there. It certainly isn't in the law at all. Um, but the idea is, is obviously when Jacob goes in, he doesn't see the face of his bride, and he doesn't really know that he's been had the bride swapped on him until morning. Uh, and so that's, uh, so it's obviously that there was a veiling of the bride um, until that hour. But um, uh, again, I, I'm not going to press every aspect of the marriage customs of the age. And again, Jacob wasn't in Israel. It wasn't, of course, Israel didn't exist. So he was in a foreign land. And I'm not going to press a lot of those into, to try to put every element to have some spiritual purpose or meaning. Um, but we do have the initiation of our, of our intimacy with the Spirit that is the guarantee, the Bible says, of what's to come and that he is the, the seal on us. And I think that's probably the best way, the, the signet, the, the seal on us that we are gods. And that's, in our culture and historically, that's been the ring, that this is a seal, that you are someone's engagement ring. Uh, and so you can kind of look at, now, in Middle Eastern practice, I think there's something more substantial than that um, in the sequestering of the gal for uh, purposes of establishing her purity before the wedding, um, it's a little more substantial. So, um, again, than just our ring that, you know, as soon as they break up, she throws the ring at them and it's over. Um, that's not really what we're getting at. It's, it's a substantial covenant commitment that's, that's substantive. It, it's legally binding. And that's what God has initiated with us, and that's why the Holy Spirit is so important, an element of that is the seal of that um, binding agreement.
um, that is established, it's paid for by the blood of Christ, but it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. So. Judging by the reaction of my gals at supper, they really appreciated the analogy this morning with the Ephesians 5 and the wedding, and that's what we're doing. Why do you go to church? I'm getting ready for my wedding. <laughs> I'm getting ready for the wedding. And uh, when everybody, when anybody asks you that now, you got a, a nice answer that'll pique their interest. Say, "What? You're getting married again? Yeah, I'm getting ready for the wedding feast. I'm, I'm preparing myself for the wedding." So, okay, good. Other questions or things involved? Yep, keep them up. I think as a medieval aspect, I think the dowry, um, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't say for sure, but I think it was tied into that if I recall. I'd have to really look it up and, and examine that. Um, obviously the bride's price we see going all the way back in the Old Testament extensively. Um, but the idea of, a, of um, a dowry that follows the bride, I'm not sure, I can't tell you where that comes out of that uh, basically is to keep her unable to care for herself if the husband doesn't fulfill his responsibilities. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right, it could have been in that facet and yep. and you can see that influence you know I had an African roommate that had to come up with a bride's price of $10,000 so which was a pretty substantial amount for him and uh, worked so he had to even though he was engaged when she was still a child um, very much so very young uh, I want to say 10 or 11 she was like pretty young 12 maybe I think, and, uh, and he had to work like six years to get that kind of money together to pay the bride's price for her. And so, um, so that's why a lot of the men are older by the time they marry because of the bride's price was just, um, that was Simon and he was from Nigeria uh, and that's what he did. And so whether that bride's price, he described as a bride's price, whether it was formed as a dowry, I thought it was something he paid to the family I don't think it was something that she kept or that was kept for her. I think it was paid to the family, if I recall correctly. It was a true bride's price. How much are you worth? Um, it's just... For the ones that are worth, worth it. Well, how do they know? That's who sets the bride's prices. His family and her family have negotiations to decide the bride's price. And it's not always necessarily in, in monetary, sometimes it's material things. 
you know, three cows, two chickens, whatever. Um, so the bride's price can be in a land. It can be a lot of things. A cow. I tried. I tried. I just couldn't get, you know, Justin's parents to the table to negotiate. So I just set one. I said, I still haven't been paid though. So, so it's like Rumpelstiltskin. So I get their first child. That's the deal. You know, pay the bride's price. You got to lose your first kid. Yeah, I, so, okay. But yeah, that, that bride's price, Christ has paid. That's why he says he has paid for you. That's in that Ephesians 5 passage, that that's the basis of his claim to us. And uh, that claim is, is not unilateral, right? Because he paid the price for the world, but he doesn't put claim on them as his own. His own are those that accept the price paid. Okay, so you can't just walk into a family and say, here's the bride's price and take the kid or take the woman if the family doesn't accept it, if the bride doesn't accept it. They, they have to accept it. And that's a great illustration, I think, of just the relational facet of it. Yes, he paid the price for all the world, but those that are his are those who have accepted that payment through belief, through trusting in Christ. Others. There's one facet I did not get to this morning because there's one passage I did not get to this morning. And so I want to just wrap that up. Unless you have some other questions, I don't want to rush you because sometimes it takes some thought process to get, to get it out and to formulate it into a question. So don't be afraid to raise your hand along the way if something comes to you. You say, oh, I know what I wanted to ask. Okay, that's all right. But let's go to 1 Thessalonians. We did read this two weeks ago because I just wanted to reference it because it talked about the word, the commandment, that this is the basis of our sanctification. But there's an element here that I really want to talk about, and I just ran out of time this morning, and it's not really enough to generate a whole message. Oh, I could. I could very easily generate a whole message out of 1 Thessalonians 4. But I want to uh, really just address as we move on on Sunday mornings to the idea of preservation. And uh, that is the will of God. In chapter 4, beginning in verse um, 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And that is, where, right there it is, in two verses, two very different facets of our sanctification. That, first of all, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so, he's about to define it. And it is God's will that we be set apart. That is what he paid for. That He paid for a pure bride. Uh, his expectation is a pure bride. He has done all the work necessary, including giving you the new man, giving you the Holy Spirit, giving you his word, giving all these things to enable you to be sanctified. And it should be evidenced. And then the very next verse, he says that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so there is an aspect of that we are to add to it, and that is our knowledge. We cannot go to God and claim ignorance. We cannot show up on the day of accounting, of judgment, and claim ignorance. 
Paul says here, you should know how to possess your vessel in sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified, to be set apart to God, to be holy? Well, you can't sit there and say, I don't know how to be sanctified. Well, that's not true. If you don't know, it's because you choose not to know, because his word is what communicates to us our sanctification, obey his commands. And, of course, that's what goes to verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Um, that we are to walk and to please God, verse 1. So if you back this up, you can recognize immediately that obeying and, and his commands and walking in, the, in God is the outworking of being sanctified. But I want you to see that he counter, counter uh, juxtapositions two, two concepts. One is that you know how to possess your own vessel, and it is opposed by the passion of lust. And we, in the next verse, that's in verse 5, right? Who do not know God. So if you have a knowledge of God, if you have accepted his sacrifice, you, you can't come away from that. You shouldn't. Let me pull it back up. You should not be able to come away from that conversation where someone leads you to Christ without an understanding that it means you have to have your life changed. The idea that we walk in, get someone to pray the sinner's prayer, and slap them on the back, throw them into a dunk tank, and send them on their way is completely unbiblical. It is so much more than that. And shame on us if we communicate that, that anyone walks away from here having prayed a prayer, asking Christ to come into their life, and thinks that their life can go on just as it always has. It cannot. It must not. And so... Um, we find that there is something that's, that, that there are two things that, are, that cannot both be present in your life. You cannot know God and be driven by the passions of lust. Those should never be able to be in the same life. Because when we start to know God, what do we know? We know his word, and we are empowered by the Spirit, and we should be able to recognize that the passions are fleshly, and they need to be controlled. That is, they need to be subjected. And Paul says, I beat my body into subjection. I buffet my body in the old days, and we used to, the big Baptist uh, joke was, buffet your body. Um, Right? How many of you remember that growing up? Buffet your body. Billy, you ever heard that? No? So in the old King James, it was, I buffet my body. I beat my body into subjection. And so they always say, you buffet your body if you're a Baptist. So you go to buffets and eat a lot. And uh, that, I don't know. So, but Paul's idea was there that I have to bring my physical self into my passions of lust into subjection to the knowledge of Christ. And so here is this, this, this almost animalistic view of man that the evolutionists have given us, that you are driven by these, that you are nothing more than an animal, and therefore um, sex, food, uh, drugs, uh, survival, violence, those are just outworkings of your animal nature. And really, at that point, once you accept the evolutionary model, um, all bets are off on, on order 
in a societal order. There is no societal order. How can there be? You're just an animal. Uh, you know, you need to eat, so go hunt something down and kill it. There's no morality to it. You're just an animal. And if it happens to be a person instead of a goat or whatever, hunt it down and kill it and eat it because you're hungry. Same thing with sex. You're a superior animal, or you're, you're an alpha male, sorry. You're an alpha male, um, you don't need her to say it's okay, right? And you don't need to have just one, you just go after them because you're the alpha male. Um, and if the evolutionary model is correct, then there can be no moral laws on the books. They have no place. And so the Bible paints a very different picture of us, that we are not animals, but it does recognize that we have passions of lust, he describes here. There is a flesh that uh, rules us until we get a knowledge of God. Once we have a know God, and that's an intimacy, once we have intimacy with God, we have the Holy Spirit, we have accepted the price of the bride, we have been claimed as his own, and we now belong to God. Uh, our temp body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and Paul's concept here is now, as a believer, you have a primary responsibility to know, know, have knowledge, to possess your body. You say, what does that mean, to possess my person? That means, and, and it comes out in Galatians, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You can control yourself. You decide what your body is going to do. And Paul says, I have to beat it, I beat it if I have to. If I have to go hungry, I go hungry. If I have to be cold, I'm cold. If I have to be naked, I'm naked. Um, whatever it takes, I'm going to serve God in whatever condition. And we see evidence of this, and we don't always appreciate it because we're soft, because we're Americans. Um, but when you see Christians uh, that are just joyful, even when they're under persecution and haven't eaten for days and days and days, have been beaten on, have been raped, have, been, have had their families murdered, have their house burned down. And you might say, well, why? Well, because they know how to possess their vessel. We know that we are in charge of our bodies and our bodies are not in charge of us. Joy is not attached to the physical realm. And so I can suffer and have joy simultaneously because I know how to possess my body. In this context, he says, you should be pure. You should be sanctified. This is your sanctification to know how to possess your body in sanctification. You're a set-apart person. I am the bride of Christ. I'm a member of the bride of Christ. And I am going to maintain this purity until he comes and receives me. Then there won't, there won't be a struggle anymore. I won't have to fight this fight because I'll be in his presence and there won't be any more testing of my purity. I will have it and it'll be completed. And so we have this period of time where we are to know how to possess ourselves. Know how to handle it. How can you handle your body? And don't think that that wasn't an issue all the way back because I don't think sin is new. Any sin. And so you go through the scriptures and you see these individuals that they fail, yes. Um, but the ones that were godly repented of it immediately. They set the, their course right and they possessed their vessel from that point on. Uh, probably the best example is David. 
Um, well, boy, lots of failures there along the way morally. Uh, uh, we had that one failure with um, Bathsheba, but that's it. Doesn't do it again. I mean, when David does something wrong, he does it big, and then he repents, he pun gets punished, repents, and he doesn't do it again. He takes possession of his vessel. That's what God calls us to do, is to take possession of our vessel and not use an excuse. Well, I can't help myself. Yes, you can. When someone says, I can't help myself to do that, they are communicating an evolutionary model that says, I'm just an animal. These are instinctual. The Bible says, no, you can, but you can't until you know God. Once you know God, now you have the reason, you have a motive. You have a motive to possess your vessel, right? What's your motive? I want to be pure for my groom. I want to be a pure bride. So now you have a motive. You have the instrument to possess your vessel, which is the word of God. So you have a motive. You have an instrument. Uh, you have the, the capacity to do it now. You have the, the power. Let's use the power. What's the power? It's your own self-will? No. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. So you have the power to do it. These are all God-given things. All right, so God made himself your groom to the bride's price. God has given you his word. God has given you the Holy Spirit. You, he has given you all of this. And now, with that knowledge, both and knowledge is not just information, it is intimate relationship, wisdom, and information. And he's given you all of it. He's given you everything you need to possess your vessel. And so we can't come to God and say, I just couldn't help myself. And no, you could help yourself. Now, I don't think any spouse is going to accept that as the excuse from their spouse being unfaithful to them. I just couldn't help myself. You know, she had too many curves. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I had to fault. Not true. It, that's just a lie. And if any woman forgives any man off that lie, um, she deserves him. Because it's not true. We are not animals. In the evolutionary model, that is true. You can't help yourself. So we should have no laws, no punishment for anything. Uh, and so you can't punish any, any act um, involving uh, food and um, rage and sex. You can't punish any crime in those categories if evolution is correct because those are instinctually driven by your animal nature. And so kill anything you want and eat it, including each other. Um, acts of violence for self-preservation. Uh, so there can't be any criminal act like that. There can be no such thing as manslaughter, nothing like that. And... Uh, there can be no moral code. You just can't have it. It is all built upon a knowledge of God, of his truth, and possessing your vessel. And then, of course, this is wrapped up um, in verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And so the reason I wanted to bring this is because it brought sanctification and calling together again. So this calling, it goes all the way back to your invitation. You're invited to the wedding feast, all right? You're invited there. 
Now we find out the invitation isn't just as a guest, it's as a bride. Part, a member of the bride. And we find the price has been paid. And, but you have to be clothed in the right garment. Remember that? If you come to the feast not clothed in the wedding garments, you're going to be cast into outer darkness. What are the wedding garments? Righteousness. Here it's described as holiness, not unclean, but holy. We are supposed to be holy before God. And as we saw in the Ephesians passage, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, um, pure. And this is what God requires of us. And so, don't believe the lie of the world that you can't do this. Um, You should, according to verse 4, know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Who are you honoring? Not yourself. Who are you sanctifying? Not yourself. You're sanctifying God. You're setting him apart as your one and only. And you're honoring him and you're possessing your vessel because he has set you apart and honored you as his bride. And so this is a mutual relationship and we recognize that I want to now possess my vessel because I want to prepare myself for him. Because he has done everything for me. He has paid the price. I am his, he is mine, and now I'm going to possess my vessel with that in mind. And that's why the actions of sanctification, the moral code that we carry, is not a drudgery, it's not a burden, it's not hard. It is something we rejoice in and we say, yes, I get to do this. So, and of course we saw in Hebrews um, this morning, I didn't emphasize that, that let us, those let us things, let us not forsake the assembling ourselves together, let us draw near, let us do these things. This is, this is almost every passage dealing with sanctification is plural, you. And we often think of it as a private thing. This is between me and God. But no, the bride of Christ is not you, it is us. And that's why we have a responsibility to one another. Because I'm not the bride, we are the bride. That's why we do church discipline. That's why we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And that's what Hebrews told us to do. Make sure you do this. Why? Because you're the bride. We are to be presented before God as a unit, blameless, pure, spotless, without wrinkle, without spot. And that spot, that word spot, Paul uses in another place. You know where he uses it? In Corinthians, when he's talking about their love feast, they are spots in your love feast. And that's why we're going to pull this out later. I'm going to come back to it. And so I will reference what I just said when we talk about why are we so adamantly against false teachers? Because they are spots. They can't be allowed in the church. And that's true Calvinism too. It is a spot on the church. And it, and it makes us unholy. Because ultimately that doctrine um, makes God evil. He's responsible for evil. He causes evil. He works through evil. They do 
gymnastics linguistically to say that's not true, but it is true. It doesn't make him a loving, holy God. It makes him a capricious, unloving, evil God if he's responsible for everything. And that everything that happens is his will. That's not true. What is his will? Your sanctification. You, plural, all of you. You guys, you gals, you people. He wants us sanctified. That's his will. Because he's a, a loving groom, but as any loving groom wants, we want a pure bride. And we are members of his bride. We are not, I am not the bride. I am a member of the bride. And so we need to possess our own vessels so that we have, in doing so, that we have shown him honor. And so you honor your future husband by possessing your vessel if you're a single person or your future spouse, wife, or husband. By possessing self-possession, then I'm going to keep myself for that future person, whether I'm engaged and know who that future person is going to be or whether I'm not engaged, but I know that there may be one. If there isn't one, well, there's always the Lord. I'm going to possess my vessel for as my part in the bride. So when we get down to the spots, why do we have to get the spot remover out? Because without, if we, if we allow them to sustain themselves in our presence, we can only expect judgment on the church instead of blessing. Any comments, questions? That was the 15 minutes I didn't get in this morning. All right. They say the worst questions are the ones that go unasked. I want to take those away. Possess your vessels, people, individually and together. All right, let's have our prayer, and then we'll take some prayer requests and praises for our prayer time tonight. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your truth and for all that you've provided us that we might uh, bring honor and glory to your name, that we might be... uh, your bride, and we know that your description of our arrival into the heavenly realms, the first thing you will do is clothe us in white. And Lord, our prayer is that this might be emblematic of how we come to you as spotless brides, bride members, um, that we're preparing for your coming. And so, Lord, keep us looking to that future hope, knowing that you have already guaranteed it by your Spirit's presence within us. And all this we thank you and praise your name. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.